Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Now, if you do like this podcast, then one of the best things you can do is sign up to the newsletter and you'll find that at eatsleepworkrepeat.com. I've also put there a page with some of the best aggregated research on how work is changing. So, people saying that they don't want to go back to the office full time companies saying what they're planning to do it's all bp this week announced that they're planning to sell half of their offices interesting obviously the, there's plenty of discussion i was interested to see reed hastings the the netflix founder this week came out and said that he thought there was no benefit whatsoever to remote working so there's obviously still a lot of discussion debate ongoing but uh, I've put all of that. So if you go to the website, the two things you'll see at the top of the page are the opportunity to sign up to the newsletter and the uh, a page of all the data that if you are looking to evidence a discussion with your work, you might find that that's helpful. Today's episode is a discussion with someone who I think really helped set a news agenda last year. At the start of last year, Anne Helen Peterson wrote an article on BuzzFeed that really sort of set in train a whole avalanche of of articles about burnout. There was a brilliant article that followed it by a guy called Derek Thompson where he talked about workism and uh, effectively sort of it was almost at one stage there was a big article in a major publication almost every every week about burnout. It was largely set off by the article by Anne Helen Peterson which was about the millennials being the burnout generation. Anyway, I contacted her because I saw on the forthcoming list of book releases that she had a book version of it coming out. The book's called Can't Even. It's available on pre-order now. I think it's sort of out in the in a couple of weeks time. Um but I was so thrilled to get hold of her. She's a really fascinating stimulating. She used to be an academic then she went and became a writer and I think it gives us a gives her a really interesting evidenced perspective on how to construct an argument and deconstruct an argument. And this discussion is brilliant. So I think what is so good about it is because we found ourselves holding ourselves responsible for being burnt out. these books like grit or the the other book that me and Anne talk about is unfuck yourself which is sort of how to some extent our burnout is on us and we need to somehow try to be better it's sort of 
it means that we end up filing burnout next to productivity hacks. We sort of see it as a flaw in the way we're constructing things. And I think what Anne talks about here is why that is actually a misunderstanding of what's going on. So I was thrilled to chat to Anne. Uh, you know, brilliant discussion. I think very on point for any of us right now. A lot of us have found ourselves working a little bit longer during lockdown, a little bit longer hours going in, thinking that we can get more done. And as Anne says in the discussion, any time that we believe that our energy is infinite, it leads to us feeling burnt out. And that's a really timely reminder, I think. Anyway, I was thrilled to speak to Anne. As she'll say at the end, uh, she's just quit her job, actually, to dedicate her time full-time to her paid newsletter. And uh, certainly in the first few weeks, it's been a brilliant and and sort of unexpected, you know, like the, the range of things she's covered has been uh, fabulous. So she, she'll give some details of that later on. The link to the original BuzzFeed article, the link to the book, and the link to her Substack newsletter is all in the, the notes. So if you scroll, scroll down on your podcast app, you click the notes, you'll see the link to all of those things. So here she is. It's Anne Helen Peterson. She's the author of Can't Even. And thank you so much for joining me. I'm, uh, I'm really thrilled, actually, just because I was so captivated with your BuzzFeed article last year. I think at the time I sort of debated contacting you and I thought, I bet she's overwhelmed. And it's, a, it's very <laughs> against the spirit of what she's saying for people to start asking her to do more work. You know, I did do a lot of podcasts after uh, <laughs> that article came out, like really like, you know, one almost every day for several weeks. But it gave me a lot to think about as I was, you know, trying to figure out if I was going to write a book about it. So it was helpful in that way. What was the provocation of the original article? What what set you off doing it? Uh, I I was really, really burnt out and I, I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. You know, I resisted my editor tried to talk to me about like, I think you're a little burnt out because I was was really struggling to figure out what to write if I did write something. And there were reactions to it from my editor. I, you know, I either like started crying on the phone, which is not my usual like response to editing. (laughs) She's like, what's going on? And, but my, you know, my reaction when I feel bad about something is very academic. You know, I'm a trained as an academic. And so I was like, let me try to research about it. And, and also deferred, you know, I was like, I actually don't think I'm burnt out. I think I'm just struggling to like get my errands done. So I started looking up and researching what I was thinking of as errand paralysis, which is like the inability to get the little tasks on your to-do list done. They just like keep recycling week after week. As I started reading, like just things about laziness or deferral or procrastination, all these things, like it all, all roads started leading to burnout. And as I read more about what burnout actually could feel like, you know, not just the, you hit a wall and then you have to like quit your job and, you know, go move to a farm and recover for a year that that's how I thought burnout worked. Like I thought it was only in extreme cases, you know, doctors, people working as 
correspondence in, in war, like, you know, people with really, really severe and exhausting jobs. As I started to read more about it, it became more clear that like, oh, this is just like our background. This is just what me and everyone I know, right. this is just how we live. Um, but because I wanted it, to give words to it. So, Because to some extent, the World Health Organization recognizing it last year was a win, but their definition, definition definitely doesn't it isn't as holistic, is it? You know, it, it, there's these sort of chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. Yeah. And it doesn't have that element that I think really was the penny drop moment of your piece, which was that it's often, it's often the way that this expresses itself in people's home lives where they can't be bothered to get a utility bill paid or they can't be bothered to can't be bothered is probably the the pejorative, but they just can't, don't have the energy to do these routine things. And I don't think the World Health Organization captures the thing that made yours connect with so many people. Yeah, I think the holistic element is what connected with people, right? Because it's not just what's happening in your job, it's what's happening in your entire life. And mm. obviously your relationship to work is so significant in how you're relating to the rest of your life and is actually, I think, like the the overwhelming element in, in how burnout is accumulated. But at the same time, it's, I think the, the common denominator, denominator is precarity. So just not having a safety net or having a decreased safety net and always trying to find some sort of stability, some sort of stable footing and and finding that very, very difficult. And I think millennials have that more than many previous generations. Um, you know, I, there's actually, <laughs> there's some comparisons that people are making between like what millennials have, have experienced as like the foundational elements of their young adult and adult lives and the greatest generation. Like, no, we don't have, we're not experiencing the blitz, right? We're not like... Mm enlisted in World War II and dying en masse, but we are enduring a series of deprivations that is uh, forming our character in ways that it, I think it'll take a while to figure out how it will affect us. What, one of the elements that obviously contributes to that for the US is the absence of healthcare. And, you know, and whether it's gig workers or whether it's low-paid workers, they, they often... Ha exist right on this sort of precarious situation or people who are on their parents' uh, healthcare scheme mm -hmm. till they're, what, 26? But then they, they have this, they enter into this sort of unprotected thing. And as a consequence, because we've got, the, we've got a national health service in the UK and so there's no one who would go without healthcare. Do you think as a consequence the UK might be seeing less burnout because of those circumstances different? You know, I think it's interesting. When I first published the article, I got responses from all over the world. You know, part of that was that it was translated. It was eventually translated into Chinese, uh, Spanish, and Portuguese, uh, particularly for our, our audience in Brazil and in French. And, you know, I don't think it it didn't resonate very well with French people and uh, right. I think with Spanish people. But I got so many responses from Ireland and from India and what I think is happening there. And because especially from Ireland, I was very curious. I was like, what is going on here? And all of the people who wrote me were from Dublin and all of them were involved in the tech industry in some capacity. 
So they are working in this kind of this corner of the Irish economy that has really adopted a lot of the American habits and attitudes. And so they are dealing with many of the same uh, attitudes towards work, right? Like maybe less of the overarching precarity, but it's like, here's the, the export of the American work culture into Ireland or, you know, over into India and into capitalist nations that are, that are really trying to, where it's, it's hard to find stability. Right. It's really interesting. I've definitely witnessed plenty of burnout in the UK. Yeah. So I think probably, um, yeah, that's not to say that just simply because we've got this safety net health service that all yeah. of a sudden that's our force field that protects us. But it really is interesting there because I guess tech is an interesting model, right? Even if people don't work in tech, then often their firms fetishize tech company cultures yeah. or they believe that, you know, this is the evolved f- version of work that we need to copy. And definitely, you know, my most recent career has been in tech and, and quite often people want to talk to me just because they want to get some of that tech mojo. You describe the idea that tech firms have created this notion that you need to love work and that your way to get your dream job is to work more and that, and look, you know, that, that Steve Jobs thing that you've you've got to do what you love. Mm -hmm. And they've definitely contributed to that whole cultishness that your whole identity and your whole value in life is defined by your job. Yeah. And that, and that you should love it, right? (laughs) Because Mm. if you love it, then it's okay for your job to subsume the rest of your life, right? If you hate your job, then it's very easy to to kind of create those boundaries, right? You're you're uh, so excited to stop doing the work <laughs> that it's easier to to make a distance between you know your work time and your non work time, and but if you love your job, then it gives you permission to let work kind of seep into all of those little cracks and crevices of your life and then really subsume your personality as well. But the problem is, is that oftentimes when you feel very passionate about your job or uh, it's a, some sort of lovable work, you know, I think tech is kind of excluded from this because oftentimes people in tech are well-paid, but lots of other lovable jobs from teaching to being a librarian to um, being a writer or a journalist, like, it gives permission for the people in charge to pay you less, right? Because it's a desirable, mm-hmm. lovable, passionate job. And so the more you love your job, it kind of, the more open you are to exploitation. And so here you are with a job that has subsumed your life. Like your life is this, this job and you are being treated like crap in it. So you mm-hmm. as a person are being treated like crap. And I think, you know, that overlap between who you are as a worker, like what your your vocation is, and the rest of your life makes it so much easier that when things start going poorly in your job, or if you lose your job, or if you actually and truly burn out and have to quit your job, what is left over? Like, mm-hmm. where is the rest of your personality? It's gone away. And it's, it seems like such a genius confidence trick along the way, that the idea that um, if people leave school and are just hoping to have a, a well-paying job, or somehow earning enough money, it's seen as, like you say, it's seen as crass, it's seen as crude, it's seen as as something that we, you know, we certainly shouldn't aspire to have a job that's well paid. We need to have a job that's got meaning, that's, uh, we need to have a job that is respected by others. And so as a consequence of that, we often take one of those jobs for 
a lower salary or to, to mm-hmm. get into a, a desirable, a, a societally desirable core company. Yeah. And <laughs> I think like there is this uh, reticence to, especially amongst like uh, more bourgeois people, right? That like somehow taking a job that is just a job, like a J-O-B job, that that is somehow embarrassing, right? You're like, oh, yeah. steady benefits, clear delineation between work and leisure. Like, oh, that's embarrassing, <laughs> right? Mm. That, but it shouldn't be. And, you know, for for decades, you know, depending on your background, lots and lots of people have worked those jobs that were not cool or that people weren't passionate about. It wasn't your identity. It was just a way to make money so that you could live the rest of your life. But we are now at a point where a lot of people don't have a rest of their lives. So Mm. it's hard for them to conceive of work in that way. But, you know, I note this in the book a little bit. I do think millennials, particularly older millennials, are reaching a point in their lives where they have burnt out on those passionate jobs and they are hungry for a steady job that's simple and straightforward and that treats them fairly and that they can separate from the rest of their lives and are are gravitating towards those jobs. Do you think the context of this disruption we've seen to the world of work this year is going to contribute to that in in any extent? Because if... One of the consequences of this disruption is that people are fleeing Manhattan and fleeing San Francisco. And so they might find themselves in more provincial towns and in, and in different distributed across the US or even across the UK, across wherever, but they're less part of a, the, 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 the whole system, the sort of the, the whole created ecosystem that's there they might as a consequence of that start optimizing for different parts of their lives exactly what you're saying but accelerating it you know the thing that i've been thinking a lot about with the pandemic is that it just clarifies so many things right so like if you had an unhealthy relationship with your work before the pandemic chances are high that that relationship is you know, equally, if not more unhealthy, um, but that you can maybe see it a little clearer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's the thing about the pandemic is it's given a little bit of time and space. Even people who are, you know, really trying to juggle everything all at once with parenting at home right now, they still like people are making decisions that they've wanted to make for a long time. Like I know a lot of people who uh, you know, maybe not quitting jobs in this moment because of how economically fraught things are, but are making big moves, right? Like they are moving across the country or they are moving close to their parents or they're just trying to change their scenario in a way that maybe mm. makes it work differently. But then at the same time, you know, I, I do think that while people are maybe clinging to their jobs for the time being, other people are kind of setting themselves up for like, okay, if I can get through the pandemic, I know that I need to make a change. And I know that I'm not happy and that this isn't working. So what can I do in order yeah. to like change things in a way that works for me? Especially because for people who can work at home, have those types of jobs that allow them to work from home, they are maybe experiencing oh. for the first time even more slippage. They are seeing how easy it is for those work hours to expand onto every part of their lives. Wake up at seven and start work and work until seven, if not longer. Yeah. That, that's why it strikes me that there's probably stages of 
uh, acceptance of this. You know, one thing amongst the, the many things are scribbled down, you say succinctly something, which I think probably is a relevant reminder for anyone going through the pandemic that hasn't yet reached that realization. You say energy is finite. And when you keep trying to pretend it isn't, that's when burnout arrives. And I think a lot of people have found that during the pandemic and this economic disruption that we've been witnessing, people have thought, well, I'm saving on commuting time. I think the Microsoft data says that the average worker, so the average worker who uses Microsoft products uh, is working for 45 minutes longer every day. The very fact that we're doing that, we kind of kid ourselves a little bit that we're getting that extra work for free. And we do treat energy, we do treat our sort of cognitive capacity as infinite. To your point here, whenever we treat en- energy as infinite rather than finite, that's when burnout comes. So so it doesn't make me feel that, you know, for all the people who've gone through that stage of realizing that something's got to give, there probably are a whole heap of other people who are still at that stage of thinking, you know, harder, faster, longer, really. Right. And that like, what can I, you know, how can I distinguish myself in the workplace right now to ensure that if there are cuts coming, that I am a person who, you know, still has a job. So, laboring in that in that moment of precarity. So yeah, I think that there are a lot of people who are still like, I can keep treading water for a little bit longer, you know? Like <laughs> I have a little bit more space to be able to do this. But then if you've talked to parents right now, like the parenting scenario, it's just so rough. Like they are yeah, really, yeah. they are hitting a wall and they are done. But you got to keep going. Like there isn't an opportunity. There isn't like... You know, and this is how you create a a culture, a nation of people who are burnt out is like, there's no way to stop working right now. So I think when the pandemic is over, whatever point that will be, there will be a pretty big reckoning, I think. It won't be all at once, but like that exhaustion is going to come to bear. Mm. You've mentioned millennials a few times uh, along the way. And I guess, you know, there, there might be people here who, who are listening to this, who say they're either not a millennial or they, they question why it's particularly a plight of millennials. Do you want to sort of explain why you believe that millennials are a generation that they've learned they have to work all the time? Yeah, I think that burnout is related to capitalism. So anyone who has lived under capitalism can you know have some sort of burnout. So just because someone was born in 1979 instead of 1981, that doesn't mean that they are not experiencing the effects of burnout. The reason I I focus on millennials is I think that a lot of the attributes that lead to exacerbated burnout have accumulated on millennials. So, you know, I know that in the UK there is increasingly student debt, but like there's so much student debt in the United States. And that is a phenomenon that has just accelerated, expanded, you know, become such a huge problem over the course of millennials' generation, having just this massive number hanging over you that you feel like you're never going to escape for the rest of your life. But then also, I think that the precarity of the the recessions of the 1970s and 1980s, a lot of our parents, and this is part of the book, parents who maybe had experienced middle-class stability for the first time, they were scared of losing that. And so their parenting styles and their ideas about how they should, you know, raise us as many adults, uh, that had a, a huge effect on the way that we relate to work, the way that we related to college, the way that we think about our jobs. And then the final thing is just like the intersection of 
of digital technologies with our formation as adults, right? Like obviously Gen Z and other generations have messed up relationships with digital technologies as well. Millennials, like we have just a, a really messed up relationship with, with digital technologies. So all of that comes together. Most definitely, I, th- I think witnessing it strongly amongst that generation is, is certainly something that I think anyone who's been in a workforce would would recognise. When you're sort of talking along the way, one of the things that I, I can definitely see is that you found that your own motivation and, and the, the motivation of people that you studied suffered when there was any removal of agency of autonomy. And you describe when you were a childminder, actually, sort of mm-hmm. a, a good example of this, that you, this childminding job gave you this intrinsic joy until an overbearing grandparent started <laughs> monitoring everything. And so much of the way that we probably, I don't know if it's worth you telling that, but but so much of the way that capitalism, the system that we're in now, attempts to try to create metrics of the way people are working or measure them and try to present it as a benign effort to measure them. Uh, I do wonder if some firm's response to the pandemic might be to say, oh, we're going to monitor you and measure you. And actually, t- to your point, it-, it could be the biggest destroyer of intrinsic motivation and double down on this sort of burnout that we're feeling. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So basically, the more that your workplace surveils you, the worse experience of work that you have, right? So I think that, as you point out, sometimes these workplaces think that they are just monitoring productivity and like looking for ways to increase efficiency or reduce redundancies, you know, different work speak like that. But really what it does is it makes people feel like they don't have autonomy. It makes them feel like they are not trusted. It uh, makes it really difficult. It just, it creates a stress as they do their work that actually makes them do their work worse. And so what I've seen in the pandemic is you have some managers who are pretty hands-off in terms of like, we trust you, you're getting your work done. It doesn't matter how many hours you are putting in or when those hours might be. We just, you know, what matters is that you're doing the work. And then you have other corporations. And I think a lot of these are places that have had no experience with people working remotely. And so just are like freaking out about what is this going to look like? How are we going to make sure that people are doing their jobs? Workers are lazy automatically. And those places are really trying to implement like, oh, how many hours you you know, spend logged into your chat client um, and mm-hmm. trying to track really closely the work that people are doing. And I think that that just creates a negative work experience for everyone. And we'll also disincentivize those companies from figuring out hybrid solutions as we move forward. Because I really do think that not everyone needs to be in an office to do their work. Um, Not everyone needs to be centralized in, in large cities. Like a lot of the work that we do now as knowledge workers, as people who can do this work from home, like it does not require a traditional office. And you're limiting the type of person who can perform that work if you're saying you have to be a person who can go in every day from nine to five or whatever. Um, but if you are already, you know, if you're, if you're sabotaging yourself by putting in these surveillance tactics, like, of course, it's not going to work. Of course, mm. people are going to hate it. The era we're living in, it, where we go out of our way to read, or we're presented all the time with productivity hacks and, and, 
and all these very simple solutions that, you know, we just need to read this and we'll be feeling better. I, I suspect, you know, anyone who might be feeling burnt out uh, w- would find that someone's presenting them with an article, which is like, here's eight ways to feel less burnt out. And But what you're describing is something that seems to be a direct consequence of almost a lifetime of believing that you needed to work hard to get a college degree and then you needed to work harder in your job so that you could get a cooler job and then you work harder. And, you know, it, and it's all in service of that, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life sort of dream. Yeah. And all of it, the way that you're presenting it here, all of it is a total mirage. It's sort of this this thing that just tries to drive you to work harder. And so as a consequence of that, you know, reaching for an Instagram account that's going to recommend eight ways to beat burnout <laughs> is just going to be like this palliative, right? It's not, it's not going to remotely solve yes, it. Yes, yes. Yeah, I was, I mean, this is the thing, right? Is that any of those, <laughs> any of those things that try to teach you how to cure your own burnout, it's really reproducing the the system that caused your burnout, which is that this idea that you should be self-optimizing all the time. Mm. So if you think of a burnout cure as a way to make it so that you can work more, that's Mm. a problem, right? The thing that I just try to point to over and over again in the book is like, if you can have a palliative cure for yourself that might work temporarily, but anytime you try to treat this as a personal problem, everything's going to go to crap again, right? Like yeah, it is yeah. it is a societal problem. And until we fix it societally, anything that we do is just a Band-Aid. So people then, because you mentioned Zainab Tan, and I've chatted to Zainab, mm-hmm. and she's a total inspiration. Yeah. Um, and I guess Zainab's approach is that it, I guess she makes the economic case as well as the moral case for just treating people with civility and mm-hmm. and, you know, having a sense that treating people well actually is an economic decision as well as just a sort of pure decency decision. Right. But but I guess what then the agency that any individual will have is that they may be, if they're in a fortunate position, they should be asking their firm or their employer what that firm is going to do. If they're in a firm trying to encourage this system thinking about treating people better and then what and then using your vote what are the what are the other actions that individuals can do at least here in the u.s like voting right now has it as is going to have a lot of consequences you know one of the big things that we that demands change is there needs to be more regulatory action on the part of you know whether it's regulating a place like uber and saying you have to treat your employees as employees instead of as independent contractors or you know, re-strengthening the rights of, of unions, um, you know, putting in place some of those components of the safety net like uh, healthcare. But the other thing too is that, you know, you point to the fact that like you can try to advocate for your manager to treat you better, your company to treat you better. And I think that's part of it, right? And as managers, my hope is that there are people who read this book that are managers and are dealing with other people because in order to help cure burnout, like it can't just be thinking about yourself, but it also has to be thinking about like, what are the actions that I am doing personally Mm. that are creating burnout in others? And I don't know if we often think about that, right? We're like, I'm zipping through my email. I'm getting through all of my emails without thinking about the fact that you're sending an email at 9 p.m. on a Sunday, right? 
mm-hmm. and how that might accelerate someone else's, like if they get that email and they feel like they have to respond to it, it's mm-hmm. all connected. Like we are all connected in this way, in this moment, at least with like the current way that digital technologies work. And we have to be more mindful of that. You raise an interesting point. You talk about books like Grit and Unfuck Yourself, which <laughs> are sort of the self-helpy, the, the worst, they're self-helpy dressed up. Certainly Grit is dressed up as sort of academic rigor yeah. about, you know, the best people survive because they've got this uh, this incredible resilient spirit. And actually the, the, the subject of resilience um, really sort of is probably a, a one that's been given a lot of airtime this year. I was in, um, I was in my partner's Lebanese and I was in Beirut when the big explosion happened mm. about a month ago. And, you know, there's all these articles initially about what resilient spirit, the, the Beirutis show. And actually oh. there was a response to it because a lot of people said, we don't want to be resilient. Actually resilience is Basically, the the people who are the victim of a system are invited to be resilient, and so yeah. generally we invite we ask oppressed minorities to demonstrate resilience, almost saying that if you don't, yeah, you know that's on you as well, and and you know this notion that somehow it's on us to fix the ills of the world and to have expectations that the world will will be fixed is unreasonable. And it's just like resilience really triggered me. When you, when you mentioned yes. grit, I, I felt the same. <laughs> yeah, well, I think about, you know, someone even like refugees, right? And we have this massive re- refugee crisis around the world. And a lot of it has to do with global climate change, but also civil unrest that is kind of interconnected with those things. But like that somehow that a refugee is somehow giving up, right? Like they didn't have enough grit to make it in their home country. Yeah. Or something like that, right? Which is just preposterous. Um, but I do think there is this narrative that, like, it, it's a fetishization of suffering and of communities that have suffered for a long time. It's like, oh, well, so many bad things have happened. And, you know, oftentimes you use the passive voice there to align the mm. fact that people have done those things that have mm. made them suffer, right? Governments, like imperial governments, um, like, things that have exacerbated climate change, all these sorts of things. So these people have suffered and yet they are resilient and it Mm. allows you to admire them, right? Or respect them without thinking through your complicity in the situation, right? And I guess in the spirit of where we are with work, people would throw at younger workers, millennial workers, you know, people in that sort of generation, but at that generation below, they would say that these individuals are snowflakey rather than <laughs> any acknowledgement that they're dealing with this preposterous volume of emails, meetings, electronic demands, and somehow it's it's impossible for them to completely assimilate what's being thrown at them. Yeah, I think there are two things going on there with the persistent uh, understanding of millennials as like, lazy snowflakes. And one is that the work that a lot of millennials do is somewhat unrecognizable to our parents' generation, right? So how is like, why is it important that you are posting something on Instagram? Like if it is part of your larger work, like that is, that is work and it is difficult work. It is precise work, but it is unrecognizable as work to a lot of people. Um, And then the other thing, too, is there's this idea that, like, if millennials complain about their exploitation, right, they've been set up to to be like we have we have been set up to expect that we have a job that is fulfilling and where our work is cherished in some way. And if we don't feel that we're like, 
uh, like maybe I should be paid more, right? Like I'm doing all this work. Like maybe I should be paid more. And then that is perceived as ungrateful because I think, and this happens, you know, generation after generation, people are like, I suffered this way. You should suffer the way that I suffer and you should take it the way that I took it. Instead of saying, oh, well, maybe these younger people have some insight into the fact that like this is not a, a good way to treat a person. I think the reason why it's so fascinating, because it's impossible to look at this without looking at the system, right? It's, it's impossible to look at the, the whole incidence of burnout, either on oneself or on one's colleagues or the people you work with or the people you live with. And it, like all of it is a, a system that is clearly just optimized for the wrong things and it's created work in just a, a bad way. But are you optimistic that any of this can be fixed? I do. I am. I, I think that maybe millennials are kind of screwed. <laughs> like I think that we uh, have been messed up in the head and it's going to take a long time to like unlearn these habits and these attitude towards work. And it is going to be a continual process. You know, people ask me, if I have fixed my burnout and I just start laughing like hysterically, (laughs) you know, like it is just, it's a continual process, but I, and I, I'm kind of, I'm nervous about Gen Z because some of the rhetoric that I am seeing from younger people is they're like, there's like, Oh, millennials are just complaining because they didn't, they're not working hard enough. Right. Like, right. I think that they are positioning themselves as like, well, millennials failed, but we're like, we know how to work. Like we, (laughs) and I'm like, wait 10 (laughs) years, you know, like wait till you have all of these components thrown on you, you know, and they have And there'll there'll be plenty of firms ready to mop them up and, (laughs) and uh, take advantage of that. Yeah. So I hope, you know, there, there's a strain of Gen Z that is, I think, very radical and pushing back against some of these expectations of capitalism and exploitation. And then there's a strain that's like, that has been inculcated into the same ideologies that accompanied our growth as millennials. And is like, well, if I can just work harder, then I can take that millennials job. Exactly that. But that's the way it's been framed, isn't it? The narrative is, is that somehow millennials in their own way had a degree of entitlement. You can just see it's history repeating. Yeah, absolutely. More from my discussion with Anne after this. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Now back to my discussion with Anne Helen Peterson, the author of Can't Even. And just really to finish, obviously you've become a poster child for a, a new way of working yourself, haven't you? You've um, quit your job to be a to, to dedicate yourself to the paid version of your newsletter. I, I was just thrilled about that. And I, firstly, I was thrilled. There was such a lovely response to when you did it. Were you in any way surprised or what made you make the jump? I love blogging. <laughs> I came yeah. up writing as a graduate student. I was writing on the side on a WordPress blog. And I just love kind of jotting out some ideas that aren't necessarily framed in a certain way that, are, that don't have to have a headline that will do well on Facebook. Um, that that isn't kind of shaped to reach a very middle of the road audience, right? Like I yeah. sometimes want to go into more esoteric things or be a little weirder in the way that I write and that sort of thing. And that's really possible with a newsletter, which is just kind of the mailed version of a blog. And I do think that it's, I'm going to have to be vigilant about my own burnout because when you're your, your own boss, it's easy to work all the time yeah. um, because it's always about, you know, like, oh, well, I could get more subscribers if I do more of this. Like, I'm going to have to be careful about taking this sort of rest, you know, giving myself PTO, pay time off, essentially. Um, yeah. And, but then at the same time, I also think that like there will be some weeks where I am working just super intensely. And there will be some weeks where I will write a little, like write a couple small posts that take me a couple hours and be able to spend time reading books, like actually just spend like one to two days, just like going deep into books or spending time just like staring at the mountains and like (laughs) doing yard work, which is essential for good work. You know, that, that freedom to have space in your mind, that's where it can just kind of echo and ricochet around like that to me is so important to doing good work in the future. So I I want to be able to make space for that. I was really inspired by it because until now, Emily Atkin, Emily Aitkin had been the sort of the inspiration, but Emily sort of runs a climate change substack Mm -hmm. called Heated. And it's like a very specific use case. Yeah. And yours was, you know, Forgive me if this is bad from the outside, but like it, yours was, it had less of a clear vertical for yeah. it, and it was just yeah. thoughtful writing, and yeah. it was it was so pleasing that just the energy that, that it was it was connected with, and actually that you know the outcome was so positive, so it was lovely to witness. Yeah, you know, I think part of what was gratifying is that I have spent the last ten years of my life, you know, first when I was an academic and was cultivating a readership, and then as I've been at BuzzFeed. I've been doing this other work on the side, which is, you know, I have this Facebook group that has 44,000 people that is just like, I have run it for a long time. It's just me posting stuff. And then I have this Twitter feed and I have, I have readers who like recognize the work that I do as a certain type of work. And so in some ways, this was like an opportunity for a lot of them who have been following me and, and been grateful for my work for a long time to be like, let me thank you for that. And some people, you know, cannot afford to pay $5 a month. And mm. I knew when I started this that I didn't want this to be like an exclusionary thing that only bourgeois people had access to. So 
I give free subscriptions to anyone who's a contingent worker or un or underemployed. Like they just have to ask. You don't have to tell me your story, anything like that. And then there's a lot of people too who have underwritten those subscriptions who have been like, I think that's important and I want to, you know, basically pay for two subscriptions. Mm. And that to me, that is also like, I love that, that readership. I love having people who read me in good faith and are not automatically thinking, oh, well, this is a piece of crap. Let me think how I can tear it apart. You know, <laughs> everything can have, you can still access it. Like people who are not my dedicated readership, they can find it online. Like it lives online. It's not just going to people who subscribe to it. But at the same time, the people who would want to find it and who there's just too many things out in the internet to always seek out your favorite writers, it's a, it can come straight direct to them. Fabulous. I, well, thank you so much. Thank you for such a thoughtful book specifically here, but you know, the, your thoughtful writing. I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to chat to you. Anyone who might come to certainly the book or, or any of your stuff will definitely find it's stimulating and an interesting reframing of what they're experiencing. And for that, there's an immense value. So I'm, I'm so grateful that you spoke to me. I'm really, really grateful. I love this conversation. It was so great. Thank you, Anne. I uh, really appreciate her taking the time. You could vaguely hear the Montana birds chirping in the background. I think there was at one stage a dog as well. There you go. Living an authentic nature-filled life. I love it. As ever, the best way to stay connected is to follow the newsletter and you can find that at the website eatsleepworkrepeat.com. I've been Bruce Daisley. Always love you getting in touch. See you next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.